Hey y'all, welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with head of publishing for Gleam Titles, Abigail Bergstrom. Just like me, Abigail is super passionate about books and is a great person to get advice from when it comes to becoming a published author. Gleam Titles represent a wide range of bestsellers in fiction and nonfiction. The team are always on the lookout for exciting new voices, particularly writers, who are using social media and online to share content in a fun and creative way. Abigail and I had a lot of fun chatting in the London Gleam office. We talked about everything from our favorite books to what is new when it comes to publishing and the voices to be looking out for in 2019. I really hope you enjoy it. So I am beyond excited to be at Gleam Titles and I'm here with the absolutely fabulous Head of Publishing for Gleam Titles, Abigail Bergstrom. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for asking me to come on. And congratulations to you and the team. It was a year in July, wasn't it, for Gleam Titles? How has it all been? Um, it's kind of crazy. It's gone really, really quickly. Yeah, it's strange to think that, yeah, it's been a year already, but we've had an, an amazing year. We've had some, like, incredible things happen. So, yeah, I'm really pleased. It's really great to see, because um, for those who are listening, I'm sure you all know that Gleam Futures has been around for about seven, eight years now, and Gleam Titles, and how did that actually come to be? I was working over at Simon & Schuster as a commissioning editor. So at the time I was commissioning books and the theme to my list was always kind of toying around with this cross-section of digital and print and looking at things, projects or content that was working online, that had an audience online, things like everyday sexism or perhaps it was like a blog, like Garon Sturay's blog or something like that and kind of translating that into print and figuring out and understanding how a book could appeal to that audience and offer them something new. So when I came across Gleam, I thought what they were doing was just fascinating. And I published Louise Pentland, and that was kind of how I came to know them. And yeah, upon sort of working with them, I had a conversation with Dom, their CEO, who said to me that they were looking for somebody to come over and kind of act as a bridge between their publishing partners Amazing. and their talent. And, and you're like, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, do you know what? It was a really difficult decision because... I think commissioning books is a real privilege and I did love what I was doing. I think in the end I'd sort of lost the fire in my belly for it and I was ready for a new challenge and the role here didn't exist so I just kind of started on my first day, handed a laptop and it was like on you go, <laughs> um, which was terrifying but I think that's good. I always kind of seek that out because yeah. I think that's what that next challenge Yeah, makes you grow and yeah and of course having that experience at Simon & Schuster really gave you, I'm sure, the confidence and the, of course, the knowledge to go off and do something like this. I mean, I'd never been an agent before, but I think I felt reasonably confident that I could do it. When I spoke to Dom about the role, I was quite upfront about the fact that I wanted to eventually sign my own talent and my own writers and kind of build my own list. And he sort of said, well, <laughs> slow down, <laughs> come over and see what you can do with our publishing and show us what you can do with our guys. And if that works out, then we can pick up that conversation. So there's ne never any kind of guarantee that that would happen. I'm lucky to work at a company that really nurtures and feeds entrepreneurial spirit. And then yeah, after kind of a year of being here, I picked up that conversation with Dom and our CFO again. And Alas, Game Titles was born. Amazing. So before we started recording, we were chatting about how we first met initially yes. at the L Magazine Literary event. And 
I just wonder, that was back in, I believe it was January 2017, so we're mm -hmm. coming up to almost two years now. What was kind of going through your mind at the time when you were on that panel? Was this kind of idea or anything that you were thinking about doing there at the time, or was that kind of early days? It was already doing well, you know, it was mm. already successful. It was just a case of bringing somebody over to kind of manage it, bolster that, that success, make sure it continued. But I was always thinking about it. I was always thinking about this idea for Glean titles. I don't think we'd had a name for it at that point. And I was sort of keeping an eye on people. I remember having a copy really early on with Charlie Cox, my young poet, and I just thought she was so talented. I just thought her writing was phenomenal and I just wanted to kind of like keep in contact with her. I don't know, I suppose these things sort of happen gradually. I sort of pulled together a business plan that I presented in-house to the kind of senior team here, what I wanted the list to be and it to kind of encompass this niche whereby we could offer literary expertise because of course that's my background that's yeah. my my career trajectory has grown um, but also us being a business that's on the cusp of social media of new media you know we have these incredible relationships with these different platforms etc etc and these new technologies that are, that are coming we're kind of always first to be having those conversations with our talent about what's coming how it can be used so yeah it was the idea of just merging these two things together and setting up a literary agency yeah. at Glee um, that had this digital aspect to it. Yeah. All the great authors and talent that literally walk through these <laughs> halls, you know, are, are part of the Glean family. So I'm, I'm sure that that just made it so much easier to, to kind of put this idea together because you already had this yeah. whole roster of talent. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, the Glean Futures list just continues to grow. And, and yeah, it is a family. It really is a family. It's, it's there's such a good kind of atmosphere here and everybody's all hands on deck. It really feels like we're all in it together. So, and as much as you know, that list is always growing and our managers here are always signing the best talent in that digital landscape. And then I suppose the Glean titles aspect was to sign people that are writers first and foremost. So they're not digital talent, they are writers, but they might have a successful podcast like Emma Gannon, for example, mm -hmm. or like Scarlett Curtis, they might be kind of driving activism online and be talking to an audience, engaging people there. So they're already having conversations and they're already using different medias yeah. to have conversations. And those are great places to kind of springboard book ideas yeah absolutely and you just mentioned Scarlett her book Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies which I have proudly on my bookshelf her and her editor Holly Harris just worked tirelessly on that book the kind of dedication and drive it was just so inspiring to watch just to have a book kind of Super Thursday which is like the biggest publishing date of the yeah, year yeah of course right and before Christmas right before Christmas yeah. you know and to have a book in I think it was hit number four I think the first week a book in the list with feminists in the title yeah. you know what I mean it was yeah, just like absolutely. wow yeah and it came out at such a great time as well and going back to Emma the multi-hyphen method again and control delete both proudly uh, as well sitting on my bookshelf and Emma's really great because she can anticipate what these next generations are going to want to need to know essentially so again harping on a little bit about the talent here they are very forward thinkers so were you an avid reader growing up it's interesting actually because I remember calling my mum and being like I can't really remember mum like, what was I and she said you know I'm a competitive beast and she said, you know, I had two older sisters mm -hmm. and they could both read. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, furious that I couldn't and determined to be able to kind of keep up. <laughs> I love level. that. So it, it, apparently it was born out of my competitive nature. But I think, you know, yeah, I've always kind of admired my sisters and wanted to do what they can do. And I suppose in many ways that's still true now. But I think my drive and love for reading came from like a love and a fascination for words to want to be able to articulate myself mm. and be heard in a very noise and loud family where I was, you know, <laughs> the smallest and the youngest and the least advanced. Lots to say. Yeah. 
But also, I'm like totally an emotional pervert. Like I love reading things that make me cry and I like to feel things. And I suppose from quite a young age, books were a way to experience emotions that were probably beyond my years and to experience mm. things that I hadn't yet. Was that because your sisters had done that as well? Yeah, I, I, I suppose. Yeah, it does tie into that, yeah. that idea that I was kind of always kind of hearkening to yeah. grow up and do what they did and have the experiences that they were having. Oh, that's um, so yeah. So what was the last book that you couldn't put down? Wow, so many. I mean, it feels a bit obvious to say Sally Rooney's Normal People because oh, everyone's one of my favourite books of the year. <laughs> oh, she's just so engaging and just so humble and just so unaffected by yeah. all of the hype around her, which yeah. just makes me love her even more. Yeah, she's like uh, that on Twitter as well. Yeah. She's very unassuming. Yeah. And doesn't understand what all the hype is about. Yeah. When we're just like, Sally she's Rooney, like, you're I amazing. Just, she's like, I've not done an amazing yeah. thing. I've I mean, just written, you have. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And then I'm, I'm reading at the moment um, The Secret History by Donna Don- that's one of my favourite books. Oh my god. <laughs> I'm upset. I literally face planted a sign in the underground on my way earlier. Do not try and commute on the central line and read at the same time. It's not advisable. Oh my god. But I, I cannot that put it down. That is one of my favourite books. I'm so it's emotionally fantastic. invested in it. Have you read The Goldfinch as well? No. No, I haven't read that either. Not, it's on my shelf to read. It's my first yeah. Donatar oh, experience. You're like, in for a treat. She I'm is loving it. That Oh, that book is just yeah. it will change you. It's yeah. amazing. So. And David Sedaris Calypso. As okay. well. I read that over the summer. I've heard good things. Just... Yeah. It's funny that you talk about the face planting thing. I'm very sorry that happened to you, but I have to give a little bit of my uh, anecdote as well. So oh, yeah. I'm I was reading Matt Haig's How to Stop Time, and I had a coffee in my hand. I had the book in the other, and of course you could do both. And I'm walking, and I literally tripped over a massive concrete like block oh that just happened to be in the middle of the square. Toppled over, coffee spilled all over the book, which was more sad to me. But what I love about London is no one asked if I was okay. They were just like, all right, girls falling yeah. over, moving on. No one cares. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm like, you're slowing me down. Yeah. <laughs> I got some money <laughs> Oh, so I, I totally get the, uh, no, the reading yeah. while walking thing. It's very dangerous. I didn't even think about the fact that nobody <laughs> asked me if I was okay. I literally just literally face planted a sign and was like, that was embarrassing, and continued on. <laughs> I didn't even for a second think, you know, why has nobody come over to me to check my. So glad I'm not alone have... with the falling over while reading. That's... Sorry that happened to you. <laughs> it's we just... Health and safety <laughs> issue. Yeah. It's not walking with mobile phones that's dangerous. It's going to be the, the reading while walking that's no. going to be I'm a problem. It's not that way to go. I mean, it's really not, but when you're reading a book that is just has you completely entranced, and I think there's a little bit of you, especially if you're walking to work, that you just don't want it to finish. You, you don't yeah. necessarily want to, want to stop. I mean, going back to Glean Titles, mm. on your website and kind of in all the copy and everything, I really like this tagline that you have, which is that you look to represent original, brave, and exciting new voices, and, and the authors that we've we've spoken about a little bit earlier, and, and you know the ones that we'll get onto, certainly mm-hmm. fit into that, that group. Why is this so important for for both readers, so like me, readers who are, who love these books, and also the publishing industry today? What what do those words, original, brave, and exciting new voices, mean? Well, there's two things that come to mind there. I think the first one is diversity, but I think in in terms of original, it's being able to encompass a whole host of different experiences from different perspectives, from people who are all coming at the world from, mm. from completely different angles and through completely different lenses. I think I was quite shocked when I first got my first job in publishing in the sense that everybody was white and middle class and you know I'm a working class Welsh girl. I certainly felt out of place for you know for a long time and kind of questioned whether it was the right place for me to be in. So mm. I've always felt passionate about publishing and finding those voices that aren't obvious and haven't had that privileged route in that some people might have. So I suppose that's where that comes from and I think 
that again ties in with why I am interested in voices that come off social media because the internet is in its toddler phase and things like Instagram have only been going for like five, six years, Twitter, you know, not much longer. Yet, all of a sudden, there was a platform where you didn't need permission. You didn't need a column in a newspaper and anyone could have a voice and could start sharing it and people would respond to you. You know, if people liked what you were saying or if people were interested in what you were saying, you could grow a following organically. And so all of a sudden, you didn't need to get through the red tape. You had an opportunity to create something for yourself out of nothing. And I think off the back of that, a lot of original voices emerged. I mean, obviously that's problematic as well now when it comes to, you know, losing the voice of experts and fake news. I'm not saying that's all the good thing, mm. but I think that is one of the good things that's come yeah. from it. And I suppose the second thing around Brave is I've always just been drawn to, on a personal level with my reading, I think, to kind of controversial voices and people that are saying things that are not necessarily socially accepted or are quite shocking. I think people that are talking about difficult issues, things that aren't that widely accepted. So for example, Laura Bates' Everyday Sexism, which I published. Laura, you know, at that time, I remember trying to pitch that book to our sales team who were kind of confused. Like, what are you talking about, Abby? Like, sexism doesn't really exist now. Like, mm. The 1950s is over, babe. Like, it's all good here. And just, you know, she was one of the first people sort of rallying and saying it's guys it's so ubiquitous it's so everywhere that we don't even see it anymore yeah. and she kind of lifted the veil yeah, yeah so to speak on that issue and just from the from the get-go no one else was talking about that and i think people like that i'm just drawn to and i think they create change and that's why being titles that's the focus you know mm-hmm. book should inspire change i think i think that's a fantastic answer and, and you're so right about everything in terms of and I, I feel like as a reader and someone who is quite invested in the in the publishing and book uh, world that the last couple of years I have seen a, a resurgence of those voices and, and not that they ever went away necessarily but that they're getting louder yeah and that it comes with the good and the bad as you said however I feel like with opportunities like what clean titles is trying to do where they're actually publishing those voices and they have something worth saying, mm-hmm. that that is only going to propel those voices to be even more meaningful, especially as the years go on. And, and I think it's really interesting, especially when, as you said, when you're talking about topics that are viewed as controversial, but who makes those limits? I mean, it's so subjective. Yeah. So what one person thinks is controversial, another person might think is is totally acceptable to, to talk about at the pub or talk about, you know, yeah. on the train. Yeah. And it is interesting that that different level of what actually constitutes as acceptable versus, you know, should we be talking about this? And, and in a way, I think it has its upsides and its downsides, but more so looking at the positive side of things, the conversations that we're having and the topics that we're talking about, particularly from women, mm-hmm. do you think that a book like Feminists Don't Wear Pink and Other Lies came out at the best time? I think we can dissect the conversation in a way that we haven't been able to before because we've been given this toolkit and this language that wasn't widely used or known before. Like, for example, I remember trying to put intersectionalism on the cover of Everyday Sexism. A male editor there kind of stopping me and saying, like, what, what does that mean? And oh, no one's going to know what that means. Like, you need to take that out. You need to change it. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, like, that's, a, you know, you can't have a conversation with like, feminism without talking yeah. about intersectionality. Yeah. The two are extricable. Yeah, exactly. And how quickly that's changed. The face of the discourse, the language around it. And I think that is... And that's coming from the younger generations as well. Mm. as Generation Z who want to 
align themselves with and identify with causes and issues, be it gender politics, be it race, be it environmental issues. That's a real driver for it. Finally, women are feeling like they can talk about these things, mm. you know? And I think that had to happen gradually. And I think there were the few brave voices that started to edge out yeah, and, and, and others have followed and it snowballed and that's the power of it. And that, mm. that can be the power of books as well. But yeah, I think again like it kind of stands back to this idea of like having that language mm. in order to be able to have that conversation because yeah. these issues are complicated mm. and it affects so many i think that's interesting as well because it can essentially expand the audience to which you're reaching as well because mm-hmm. not only are books like that and platforms really reaching the audiences that they're going for so maybe it's 25 to 34 it's 35 to 44 yeah but it's also gonna be available for the future generations as well who will one day reach that age bracket or, or even now yeah and feel like that book is exactly what they need to pick up which is, yeah. is really great and I think in a way having people like you who are in tune and in touch with that generation is really good as well because you know what it is that people want to read and that's that's really important looking at your own plans in terms of the future mm. would you ever write a book would i ever write a book yeah i think so i do write i write in my spare time it's a hobby and it's something that i do because i enjoy it and it's a creative outlet i think as an editor or an agent, you give a lot of your creative ideas and energy and fuel away. And that's kind of your job. You're a catalyst for other people's projects, really. And you're a conduit mm. and you play a role in that process. And that's fine. You know, kind of, I love that. I love that I get to collaborate and work with so many different people and be a part of their books and their process. And I love my job and I'm deeply grateful for it. I definitely have always needed to have my own side projects. I've always done things on the side whether it be a feminist campaign or writing for a magazine or just sat in my room and as I say like writing for me like my own personal creativity is conducive to my creativity in my day job yeah and one informs the other yeah one can't exist without the other of course and I feel like if I don't have my own things going on that are just mine I sort of dry up well it brings in that different perspective as well if you were to write a book would it be non-fiction fiction what, what are your kind of thoughts on that I mean I or both I wouldn't rule out yeah either to yeah. be honest Probably fiction. What the thing that I'm kind of writing and working on now is a novel. Yeah, so probably fiction. What aspects of your role continue to surprise you? Which ones challenge you? If you I think just the speed of discourse, mm-hmm. you know, I, I suppose I work in kind of reactive topical like guys publishing and it seems to pick up pace, pick up pace, pick up pace mm. and to have somebody to be able to write a book and comment on that it feels like there's a moment where we're all looking at something and pushing forward with something and if you miss that moment mm. a book will fail Pass by. it will yeah it, 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 it's getting all the stars to align and I think that never fails to surprise me how quickly everything moves and you don't have time to kind of sit around and ponder mm. I kind of feel that I often have to really trust my gut and just move with an idea mm. quickly that is challenging mm. for sure and surprising and surprising yeah. and I think yeah sometimes I think god wouldn't it be lovely just to work exclusively on like literary fiction like, just like <laughs> sit and read these yeah. amazing books all day and yeah. look but you know that's that's got its own challenges too indeed I'm, I'm sure the other thing that I find challenging and surprising but in a positive way is my relationship with the authors that I work with mm. because what they're doing is an, a, an incredibly emotional thing you know writing any book is an emotional thing and it's hard like it's, it's really hard and you're putting a part of yourself down on paper 
and that makes you feel vulnerable and it's arduous and can make authors feel quite uncomfortable mm. and it's my job or any agent's job and editors I guess to support them through that and help them when they're in that really vulnerable place and that is you know challenging in all different types of ways because every single person is different and yeah, every single person deals with that differently and I always feel like a huge responsibility because in representing these amazing talented people that I get to work with I am speaking on behalf of them and negotiating on behalf of them and in part am responsible for their writing career which if I sit and think about that for too long I, I don't think I'd ever do anything because the responsibility is massive and yeah. if you make a mistake it's not just affecting you it's affecting them and mm. I think that is something that's always challenging and surprising and just adapting to working with very different personalities and everybody needs something different from you mm. and you need to make sure that you can kind of be malleable and yeah of course res- be responsive to that I find that challenging but I love it but I find it challenging yeah of course and the, but of course the, the whole process I'm sure is just so rewarding because to be yeah. able to to sit down with somebody from day one and say, okay, what is it that you're actually seeing here in terms of, of your book? And, and I'm sure just, like, for all authors, to see that end result mm. probably feels daunting yeah. at, at the beginning. But you are you get to see that kind of from, from start to finish, yeah. which must be extremely rewarding. And, and going on that journey with them. The people that are part of the Glean Tiles family and the Glean Features family, they make it look easy. Yeah. They make it look like not only is it just loads of fun, which I'm sure it is, but they do, they make it look easy. Yeah. How, how do you think they do that? Because life is a highlight reel. You know, not a lot of people share the experience, the grueling experience of writing. Yeah, I mean, right. I, when I sign authors, I, I really should tell them that they're writing four books, not one. Because you write multiple drafts mm. and there's edits. And I think people are always quite surprised by that. Having mm. to like go back and completely rework parts of the book and yeah. start from scratch sometimes yeah. in, in areas, in parts. and. That's really, really mentally tough yeah. to keep going back and keep perfecting. And I think by its very nature, writing is quite kind of, you isolate yourself. Mm. And so therefore you step back from social and conversation. Yeah. You know? And so there isn't as much dialogue around mm. that. So that's probably why it looks easy. Yeah. There is certain elements, like you said, that we don't see. Mm. And of course, nobody is going to, well... Some people might, mm-hmm. if, if they feel so so inclined, but most people are not going to go on Twitter or Instagram even and have a picture of a blank page and be like, I don't know what to write, guys. What should yeah. I write? So, yeah. you know, cause Or we, I hate my cover. Yeah. I, guys, just have visuals in from my publisher. I hate my cover. It's the worst. I'm so upset. <laughs> you know, nobody... You know, when bad things happen, I guess people are really in the reality and here and now focusing on that. As well, when you're going through that process not having been through it myself hopefully one day but you do give little tidbits you know kind of okay like you said here's my cover Mm -hmm. here's kind of the first draft or you know the pool does you know here are the first five pages of of this book or whatever which which is great yeah but it has to be said I think that that end result that physical book that you have in your hand that you're signing for people at an event has got to make that whole process worth it so if you so to speak imagine that your book has been published and it's up on the shelf and it's a huge success. If you were to list some other authors or books that you would want on that shelf alongside your book, who would they be? I read this really amazing interview with Sylvia Plath and a journalist kind of kickstarted the interview, was in the living room with like the library and was like looking at her books and she's kind of painting the scene and she's waiting for her and she's like kind of tense and excited. 
And Sylvia Plath walks in and is like, I don't know why you're looking up there. You won't find anything. You won't find anything decent up there. I don't know why you're even looking. Like, anything of any word that's any good, I've given away. Like, yeah. I don't hold my, my good books. Yeah. Something's good, give it away. I just hope that if I've ever book out, it'll be handed around. <laughs> yeah, not sat on a shelf. I love that idea of like passing the best literature on. Mm. But in terms of like authors that I most admire, I'm obsessed with Angela Carter. Absolutely love her work. And yeah, Sally Rooney, I really love Deborah Levy. Gosh, I can't even imagine. It's, it's a difficult question. It's thought not easy. sitting alongside any of those, I would be like, get my book away from there. It doesn't deserve to be anywhere near them. <laughs> that oh, genius. But yeah, those writers that, I mean, even Donna Tartt, who I've said I'm just reading now, when I sit and that level of writing, mm. I just think, God, why would anyone bother to pick up a pen? It's like it's unparalleled. Oh my it? God, it's blows my mind yeah. it blows my mind so I guess I would like to be <laughs> put alongside the geniuses whose shadow I will forever kind of you know dance and frolic in and I'm sure one day that will absolutely happen <laughs> I actually think one last question something that I'm definitely interested in knowing and I'm sure other people would want to know as well for people who know they have a book in them mm-hmm. and they really want to kickstart that creative process what would be that one piece of advice or maybe a, a few pieces of advice that you would give to somebody who's really starting that creative process? So two bits of advice. I think the first one is buy books because if you don't buy books, you're never going to get published because <laughs> the industry will crumble and die. And you'll never have any money. Yeah. <laughs> like me. Buy books. But, but really read. Like read. Read, read and read and figure out what you like and what you don't like. I think that reading and reading and consuming does inform and help you find your own voice, I think. So yeah, just definitely be aware, especially if you know the type of genre that you want to go into, kind of figure it out. Like experience what you love about some books and experience what you also don't like. And I think it can, I think it's always what you don't like, which is most informative to Mm. your own authorial voice. That's interesting. And I think you just have to start. And ultimately, what you get down on paper that first day that you start, those first 1,000 words, you might never use, they might never see the light of day, but they are the essential step to getting to that point of holding your book in your hand. I actually published this book called The Art of Getting Started by Lee Crutchley, and it was this kind of like reckless journal type book all about overcoming our fear of wanting to be perfect. So often we don't start things because we want it to be perfect. We want the very first thing, like the first sentence that you write, it's not gonna be brilliant, it's very unlikely it's going to be brilliant. Yeah. Like, don't be afraid. But it's not about perfectionism, is it? No, it's not even about it being that good. No. It's just about it being that first step <laughs> in a series of many steps. Can you imagine, though, an author just literally writing their first draft and that being the one that goes published? I, mean, I can't even imagine I think that. Sally Rooney, when I saw her at Cheltenham, she was talking about how she'd done like 15 drafts or yeah. something like that. I and mean, it do, it's not just something you can do in six weeks either. For some people, it takes five yeah. 10 years, you know, to, to do something like there that. There are so. very few people that have that raw talent. I mean, Jack Kerouac writing yeah. on the road overnight. There are very, very few people who have that kind of raw talent or, mm. you know, that, that can do that. There is no shame in graft and craft yeah. and grow yeah. and grit. Like, it's... Well, that, that's that's part the, of it. Some of the best parts of the book. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what makes into it. Absolutely. I lied. One more question. Are there any exciting Gleam title releases that uh, people can be looking Ooh. out for either this year or next year? So many. So, so, so many. So um, Louise Pentland's got more books coming, which I'm so excited about. Excellent. She just continues to deliver and it's just, yeah, she's got a really great 
kind of career ahead of her. So that's exciting. Anna Newton as well has got a book coming called An Edited Life. We've got Ian Haste, who's got a cookbook coming. Mrs. Hinch, who I'm not sure if you're familiar of. If you're not, go check her out. Sounds great. She's got a book coming, which is going to be amazing. And yeah, I'm working with a few others like Lucy Sheridan, Lottie mm-hmm. Jeff. So yeah, we've got an Instagram, which is at Game Titles, where you can yeah message us, but also keep up to date with all of the books that we've got coming, all the amazing things our authors are up to. And we've also got a website, www.gleamtitles.com, and you can submit proposals on there. So if you'd like us to take a look, or you've got a good book idea, please send it to us. We'd love to read it, and uh, yeah, we'll be in touch. I think that's a great place to end. So thank you so much, Abigail, for your time. Thank you. Really enjoyed it, and uh, I think everyone will be looking out for all these great titles. Woo! Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!